Kia ora, I'm Jenna. In this episode of Asian in Aotearoa, I catch up with Nathan Joe. Nathan is a Christchurch-born Chinese Kiwi, an award-winning playwright and performance poet and director, screenwriter and critic. Nathan shares about his creative journey, expression of identity and labels, taking up space, relationships, romance and what's on the horizon for him. Welcome Nathan Joe. Hi Jenna, glad to be here finally. I'm a very big fan. You're a very big fan. I am. You're so talented. <laughs> I am a very big fan. I think I've seen you about. I think I've seen you around five times now. Once in Amanda Lear's living room. Do you remember <laughs> Chinese New Year's? Yes, on the Civic in the basement. That's three I know, very three. different venues. Yes, and I was surprised to read that you were once an introvert. Oh, this is such an interesting. Softly spoken. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I think I am still an introvert in many ways. I guess what I was trying to say in that statement, probably in the promo piece I wrote for Dirty Passports, was that the notion of being an introvert or the notion of being softly spoken can be something that's forced upon you as much as it is something you are naturally geared towards being. I find the binary between introversion and extroversion quite tricky to navigate in sort of a false binary anyway, like most binaries. Yes. But I think introversion, extroversion in particular is something that's very self-fulfilling a lot of the time. You're kind of taught or trained or socialized to believe you're one or the other from your environment more than in an innate experience. Because most introverts I know in the right context are pretty noisy. And most extroverts I know actually in other environments need a lot of space and time. I mean, and I don't want to say I'm an ambivert. I think that's kind of avoiding the question a bit. But definitely growing up, I was more on the soft-spoken, shy side. I still think of myself in that way in certain contexts. Mm. Was there a turning point? I think in my 20s, particularly after my first serious relationship, because I'd spent so much of my relationship with this long-term partner kind of hold up and we didn't go anywhere and we just you know our life was each other oh, yeah. and that was such an extreme of leaning into the introversion and having this like lover and partner that you just you know it's us against the world oh yeah 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 and then after that broke apart realizing oh no i've really neglected my social life my friends my work the external world and it was fun to kind of pit myself against the external world for a bit but in the long term, it was quite damaging. So in a way, after my first major breakup, I would say I reinvented myself. <laughs> yes. It sounds oh, terrible. Yeah. No, no, don't we all? <laughs> yes. The breakover. The breakover. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't have a meltdown. I melted up. Ah, yes. <laughs> but it was really good. I kind of reconnected with a lot of friends. I threw myself into my passions and my hobbies. Not straight away. And I realized I enjoyed taking up space a little bit actually i'd yeah. done so little taking up of space in my teens and my early 20s that actually it was very like fuck the system or revenge of the nerd i don't know it, it, had, a, it. Yeah. A, it had a nice arc to it yeah what's the difference between how you feel when you're in christchurch compared with auckland christchurch feels more like home warts and all it feels calm too calm sometimes, slow. There's so much space, both geographically, but also space to breathe. Whereas Auckland, I feel like I'm closest to the things I want to be doing or the person that I want to strive to become. Whereas Christchurch is sort of, I find some sort of peace with the current version of myself. I think being too comfortable with your current, the current version of yourself can also be quite problematized because that sort of feels like coasting is probably the wrong word, but settling, I think is the right word. You know, it's the difference between being settled and settling. And I don't know where that line is with Christchurch for me. Oh, interesting. Whereas Auckland's the opposite. 
I very rarely feel settled or that I'm settling, but I feel very frantic. And you're, you're constantly moving between the two? Yeah. Or lately, or just because that's what work's doing? So I moved back to Christchurch a couple of years ago after I quit my job. And I was like, I'm kind of sick of working full time for the man. Oh, were you? I actually (laughs) don't know this about you. (laughs) Uh, I was working. It was actually a a very cozy job. But I was working for a TV channel, Choice TV, as an operations manager. And I was like, why am I the operations manager? (laughs) This doesn't make sense. And I wasn't really committed to the work. I was very bored, very unchallenged and kind of bad at it because I didn't care. And I was neglecting my creative self at that point. So I essentially quit the job, put on one last play before I was like, I'm going back to Christchurch. I'm going to study art therapy. And um, yeah, and then I didn't really do that properly. I moved back to Christchurch, kind of fucked out. I guess took a year to figure out what I wanted, which involved a lot of really problematic, chaotic behavior mm. to myself more than anyone else. And then the following year, I started putting myself back together, realized actually I do want to go back to Auckland, but I had to go back to Auckland with purpose, with a sense of what do I want to be in Auckland or what do I want to use Auckland for? Yeah. Because I think Auckland is sort of a city with resource and people and so many dreams and aspirations and activity that you can't just chill in Auckland. I, I can't just chill in Auckland. If I go to Auckland just to be complacent, I guess the thing is why Auckland then? Mm. Like the point of Auckland is it has things that other cities can't give you. It offers the potential to expand or be expansive in ways that other cities have much smaller boxes comparatively. Mm. But then I I figured out Christchurch was potentially a quite a good home base. And I also don't have a full-time job in Auckland, you know, so I'm a freelancer yeah. now, a creative freelancer, going back and forth between the two. Christchurch is sort of home base. Yeah. Auckland is where I do most of my work. Nice. Yeah. I've never been to Christchurch. It's <laughs> it's very colonial. And I'm kind of gutted that I missed the um, the Asian Kiwiana show. Like, I'm kind of gutted. And go- I, I need to go, I think, mm. because I think that my idea of Christchurch is like they're a nut neo-nazis on the street like every you know which i know isn't it isn't based in like i mean there are neo-nazis in Christchurch. that's the that's the problem i don't want to be hate crime but you know it's you know yeah i think i need to go but it's not that's not the um i'm sure there's more yeah there's more to Christchurch than neo-nazis and skinheads and boy races yeah it's funny because i think new zealand cities generally have such antagonistic relationships with each other especially the, the bigger cities like the core three in particular have really fraught like Wellington, Auckland, Christchurch. (laughs) They usually don't have good things to say about each other as someone who's flitted between Auckland and Christchurch and visited Wellington. And it's funny because all three cities are great. Like genuinely, we are so lucky to have three cities as interesting and I don't know, they offer so many opportunities in different ways. Yeah. Opportunities and not just like a work lifestyle way, but also as a place to go and raise a family. Wellington is such a great CBD. (laughs) You know, you can't be Wellington on a good day, but genuinely it has the best CBD to walk around in, I think. Mm. It's just the weather is heinous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm getting assaulted by the wind yeah. most of the time. <laughs> and then Christchurch, I think, is in a really beautiful liminal space where it's discovering its new identity. And Auckland's just a big city and it has a lot going on and that's, you know, you either like it or you don't. Yeah, it's really lovely to hear you speak about Christchurch like that. Yeah, I'm super fond of it. Yeah. Super, super fond of it. Nice. Um, whereas Auckland, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with both Auckland and Christchurch and for like inverted reasons or inverse reasons rather. Like Auckland, there's so much Asian diaspora in the Auckland arts and culture. It's amazing. I didn't, you know, if you had told me that this landscape was going to be one of the biggest creative communities in Aotearoa when I was a young lad, 
I would have just not believed you. Mm. Whereas in Christchurch, Asian diaspora, creative Asian diaspora is pretty non-existent. I feel like I'm one of the few Asian creatives with some visibility there. Mm. And maybe my friend Stephen Park, who's a costume designer. Yeah, it's just like us two and then a few other young kids. But So you're like king of Christchurch. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> But it's interesting you say that because I think Christchurch is a city where you can be a big fish in a little pond. Mm. And I think that's why the charm of that means you yes. don't want to move away. You can be known in your community yeah. in a really easy, comfortable way. Yeah. How do your parents respond to what you create? They don't. <laughs> well, the thing is, most of my work theatrically or live art-wise happens in Auckland. Auckland. yeah. And they work pretty hard at the fish and chip shop down in Christchurch, full time. So it's never really occurred for us to... I've never invited them. They've never asked to be invited. And it's sort of an unspoken thing. Uh, yeah. It's not that it's fraught, but it could be. It's avoiding potential for some sort of disaster. I don't think it would be disastrous. I just think it would be uncomfortable. Mm. I think the difficulty is my work is predominantly in English. My mother can't speak English very well or she wouldn't understand the content. My dad would, but I think it would make him very uncomfortable because mm. he's, I would say, I guess, second generation Chinese Kiwi. He's all the pieces of like Asian diaspora and like Kiwi stoic male smashed up against each other in a beautiful way in many regards, you know. I think the story of the stoic Kiwi Asian man is one we don't really understand or we're not told mm. about. Mm. Not in our media, not in our, I guess, the general Kiwi consciousness. Yeah. But it's such a big part of the Kiwi identity, actually. The stoic Asian Kiwi male, the Kiwi dad, Chinese Kiwi dad. Yeah. yeah. So he's so that. And I think just those conversations that a lot of my play centered around are things that he hasn't had the privilege or space to ask himself. Mm. So I think it'd bring up a lot. And then, you know, it would force a conversation that maybe he's not or I'm not ready to have. Sure. Yeah. But I look forward to the day they see a play of mine and I look forward to the day maybe I write a play that I know can sit in that space where we meet. How do you establish boundaries with your parents? Do you? Have you? No. <laughs> Moving back to Christchurch, I realised how I kind of ran away from figuring that out mm. and coming back home was going, oh yeah, the boundaries, there's no boundaries. I'm pretty sure my dad's opened the door on me and another friend <laughs> in bed together when we were sleeping wow. and then just closed the door okay. and sort of just like, you know, erase yeah. that total recall, that memory away. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I I'm pretty sure. <laughs> And that's fine because they, they know that I'm gay. It's just something we don't really address or talk about very in-depth. And Dad's pretty cool about it. Cool in air quotes, definitely, but he's pretty cool about it. Okay, that's a good thing. It's more good than bad. It's uncomfortable, mm. but not tragic. Mm. Which I think is actually probably the narrative of most queer kids with parents who are okay, but uncomfortable. You know, I think it's a, that's the majority of Asian parents, gay kids, I know. is like, they're not as problematized as we thought they would be. They're not as upset as we thought they'd be, but they're not okay with it either. It's, it's in this like, we haven't figured it out mm. space. That's like the common thing I find with a lot of my queer Asian friends. We have parents who haven't quite figured out how to deal with their gay son or daughter, but they still love them. Hmm. Let's talk about Dirty Passports, which was incredibly moving, by the way. So Dirty Passports is a poetry hour that I curated for the Basement Theatre. The premise was that it was intended to be a full BIPOC ensemble, full BIPOC lineup. So we had people from Indigenous, Tangata Whenua, Diaspora, just like a whole mishmash, a hot pot of goodness. Yes. And yeah, it was super fun. Probably one of the most rewarding 
artistic endeavors I've not stumbled across, but it feels like I stumbled across it because it all came together because Nisha, who programs at the basement, was like, oh, I really want you to do a poetry hour and I want you to ask Sam Takani to be part of it because I really want Sam to be at the basement. He was fucking so great. Yeah. So what delighted you about that experience, that opportunity? I think it's very rare that the BIPOC community intersects in that way. Mm. I think so often when we make um, minority art, Mm. (laughs) it's like one minority siloed. It's like, now's the Asian show, or now's the black show, or now's Mm. the Matariki show, (laughs) which is great. And that's kind of the building block of, you know, you have to serve your own community sometimes first. But then I go, I think as a person who exists, lives, and profits off stolen land, it's slightly disingenuous to just put the Asian agenda, if you want to call it that, first and foremost. Like, how do we meet in a space where we're serving a greater goal, which is like commonality of difference or finding a space where, I don't know, progress is made together? Yeah. It's a difficult one because that's only something I'm reckoning with as of the last maybe two years, going the answer isn't just to overpopulate the arts and culture pool with lots of Asian art, but... As an Asian artist, how can I create space for everyone who needs it? Yeah, which you fucking did. How did that feel? It was cool seeing people who would never normally go to the basement at the basement, whether they were the performers themselves or audiences who were like, let's check this out. Yeah. And it sold out, right? Yeah, it sold out. So we did three nights for the original run, and then we did a return one night, and then I'm planning to do a volume two. Oh, are you? Yeah, with a new lineup in August the 20th. Awesome. Yeah, I just think so often we forget that minority art doesn't have to be one thing. You know, we can kind of fuck up the way we see these sort of um, curations or programming or different coloured... Like, how do you create minority art that doesn't feel tokenistic? Or if it feels tokenistic, how can you play with the notion of tokenizing? Yeah. Fucking hell, Nick. That's so, that's so cool. Which bit? <laughs> what you're doing. But I don't know. I think there are a lot of people slowly doing this as well. You've, you've got like spaces like Filth, which is like yeah. a queer gig space, yes. right? Yeah. That's led by amazing BIPOC yeah. women. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. Auckland's in a really good place for that right now. There is so much diversity of bodies and thought. And I don't think the wider New Zealand consciousness is actually aware of that. No. And that's something I thought that I had at the basement at Duty Passports. And I was like, in that room, I'm thinking, watching the performers, just being in the environment, I was like, I don't think people have any fucking idea what's going on. Mm. Amazing. Mm. I think the basement is a really amazing space for that because a lot of our interesting storytellers actually have passed through there, you know, at some point or another. You know, I use Tom Sainsbury as an interesting example because he's someone we know as this, you know, the wider New Zealand consciousness knows him as the Snapchat guy. Yeah. But to me, he's always been the guy I, when I first moved to Auckland, I saw him doing these like wild, wild plays to crowds of, you know, sometimes five to ten people. Wow. And how is Scenes from a Yellow Peril coming along? Um, if you can talk about it. Yeah, I can talk about it. So that's a play that I've been working on for a good few years. And this year we staged a kind of epic play reading of it at the Civic. It was beautiful. Of, as part of the, yeah, it was one of the best experiences of my life, creatively, so far. Like that and Dirty Passports, also within like a span of a few months. Yes, really close together. Yeah, really yeah. close together. I was so exhausted by the end of that. And then I did a show in Wellington with the director of scenes, Jane Young, Jane, yes. called um, How to Slay a Dragon or Save the Dragon or Slay the Dragon or Neither. So that was satisfying. But for scenes. me, mm. scenes was a really intense personal endeavor. Like, it felt like so much of me was there. Whereas Duty Passports was about creating a space. And yeah, I curated and I was in it. But it was more about holding space for others and creating space for others and creating, like, an event. I felt more like a producer with Duty Passports. Mm. Whereas scenes, I felt like my body, 
my thoughts, my ideology was on the line. I, like a lot was at stake, even though it was just a play reading. But it wasn't. Ju- it didn't feel like just a play reading. And it, someone who was sitting in the audience, just like, oh my god, it didn't feel like just a play reading. It was. It was really incredible. Yeah. Thank you. So basically, we applied for funding to put it on properly, whatever that means. A full production of it in Auckland and Wellington next year, and we got the funding. Congratulations. Yeah, which is amazing. Which is fucking. Uh, I can't wait. No, neither can I. Yeah, I, I don't even know what they will look like, <laughs> but the potential and the possibilities are quite. I wouldn't say endless, but that is so the box has expanded so much. It's, it's funny because I think really when I was younger, the notion of you know putting on a play at this scale was sort of the dream and it's kind of funny to know that that's now on the horizon yeah and that goalpost then I know will just keep moving yes yeah, and it's oh, strange. I love this for you so yeah very excited it'll probably happen early half of next year we'll mm. get more resources to just do it properly but um for those unaware scenes was this kind of performance poetry meets theatre meets monologues meets documentary but an exploration of the East Asian predominantly East Asian experience in New Zealand. It's particularly through the lens of being diaspora and what I myself and I think a lot of others are reckoning with, you know, to figure out our place in this country and as people and to navigate it with some sort of honesty and integrity and then fail and then try again and feel bad about it and try Mm. again. Mm. And the kind of crux of it is so much guilt and shame that's either thrust upon us or that we reinforce in ourselves. And it's, and so much of it's in relation to whiteness. And that's sort of a problem, but it's also, I think, the truth. Yeah. Oh, man. What do you forgive yourself for? What do I forgive myself for? I forgive myself for not being that self-aware or thinking I knew the answers in my early 20s and now being able to exist in a space that I know I don't know the answers a lot of the time. But I also forgive myself for not speaking up earlier, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. I think about how I wish I'd done a lot of things earlier or I had carved space for myself earlier a lot. I see so many younger people doing it now and I'm so impressed by them and jealous and envious, but also I go back to impressed. That's how I feel about all of you. (laughs) (laughs) All you young people in your 20s. Well, my 20s are almost over. (laughs) How do you determine your own success? Well, that's funny, right? Because... With scenes happening next year and that being kind of, that will be the biggest thing I've done as a project so far in my career, probably. Mm. Having like a fully funded big production on the horizon. And to me, I guess that should be what success is, but I know that that goalpost will continue to move. Mm. And I know that it will kind of escape me. And I find that exciting, right? That the goalpost is always moving and you you actually can't tangibly grapple with success. Yeah. It's not like you're like, okay, I made it, the end. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I mean, and it's good that that's not the case because stillness, Mm. you know, can be really treacherous if that's not what you want. Mm. And I don't want stillness yet. I mean, I say that and then sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I I just sleep for a week. But overall, despite what my body needs, my mind doesn't always demand or want stillness. I know I'm quite hungry to chase something ephemeral and slippery. So success to me is constantly pushing that goalpost, I think, to constantly not reaching it, but attempting. It's, it's There's a Sappho poem about, it's like about love and eroticism, but it's about reaching like the, the furthest apple on the highest branch of the highest tree and never quite reaching it, but reaching it anyway. And I love that image of like striving mm. and never quite but always trying. Mm. And that's success to me, the reaching, not the apple itself. Oh, I love that. When did you realize you had writing talent? Huh. (laughs) I don't know. 
um, I've always liked it. And I've always liked storytelling because it's such a beautiful, as a OG introvert, storytelling's always been like the best form of escapism. Mm. And how did you realize that into something you actually did for work? I think after graduating high school, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I enrolled at broadcasting school. I got in because filmmaking seems like a logical form of storytelling as a film buff at the time. But then I moved to Auckland and discovered this theatrical landscape of like live performers and bodies in space telling stories and then I gave running a play a go I feel like that's very impressive like oh I just you know I wrote I wrote a play like but it wasn't very I mean I think it had some nice moments of sincerity and honesty in it but it wasn't very good and that's okay yeah but what happened was there were really encouraging people like shout out to Stuart Hoare who works at Play Market is a great playwright himself but was a great sort of de facto mentor to me really encouraging really the importance of mentor figures and advocates or champions is something i talk about a lot but without them most young emerging creatives just wouldn't have the fuel to Mm. make the things they want to make you know they feed our ego in a way Mm. they give us the sense that we can do anything or that we have something to say and most of the times we do but they're probably being a bit generous and that's actually quite helpful i don't think robust criticism is actually what young creatives always need yeah i think support is yes because you kind of need to get over the hurdle of believing in yourself before you can get over the hurdle of becoming good to be honest because good is such a slippery quality anyway. The notion of mastery is what, like what is it? <laughs> 75,000 hours or something? Mm. I can't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. Something like, like, I don't know, 10,000 yeah. hours? I think it's 10,000. So, I don't, I don't know. know. But the notion a lot of, of hours. Ma- is a lot of hours. But to even get to that point of wanting to spend time doing something for that long is, requires encouragement on like a really basic level. And some people are born maybe knowing that they're good at something, but I think most people are born with a sense of insecurity and bafflement about what they're even doing. So for me, encountering a mentor who was like, hey, go for it, was the first step. Seeing that you could do this thing because there were other people doing it was the second thing. And maybe the third was committing to it and just getting over the hump of fear and anxiety. But I realized it, I guess, because people told me I was good at it. I didn't really have a self-sufficient sense of, I guess, confidence at that point. Confidence is still such a shaky concept to me but when you hear someone responding to your writing i think you know you know you're you're at least saying something that's connecting because every story anyone tells i think is an attempt to say something to someone or connect to someone on like a really basic level you know like i'm sad i'm lonely i love the world i hate the world and then someone going i hear you when do you know you've finished a piece of writing i've been wrong about this so many times so i've been wrong about thinking Uh, I finished a piece of writing so many times. I think that's why I like theatre, because it's impermanent. You know, it kind of happens, and then it's gone forever, but then you could do it again, and it can change, and it's not fixed. I mean, you can record it, but that's not really what it was, or what it is. Yeah. It's a... You know, it's an archive for the moment. But a piece of theatre kind of exists in memory. Yeah, it's I'm unstable. I was thinking about Dirty Passports and I was like, man, I would so watch that if that was recorded. But of course it's not. It wouldn't be the same thing. Mm. I'm so I'm very pleased to hear that you're And once it's recorded, it becomes like a filmic interpretation of it anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know, mm. genuinely. But mm. I'm also okay when I feel like I've outgrown something to kind of let it be. I think something's finished when you don't feel like you need to return to it. Mm. When you feel like that chapter of your life is closed. But then I still return to things, I just don't change them. Like, many spoken word poems I have are kind of like time capsules of a moment in history where I was a particular person. And it's funny performing them with distance, because I feel like I'm pretending to be a, a version of myself that no longer is. Yeah. It's like uh, re-experiencing a flashback, or experiencing a flashback, or embodying a flashback. 
Mm, great answer. How have you grown over the past 12 months? I feel like coming back to Auckland has been very formative. Like it's been a really amazing homecoming, even though it's more like a work coming. It's a funny thing to have people go, wow, you're amazing at what you do. It's the form of validation that you want to hear, but you don't want to admit you want to hear. Because it feels, I mean, it, it's so at odds with, I think, both the Asian and the Kiwi sensibility. So it feels like weird to own that. Mm. And I'm still coming to terms with owning being good at something. But I think it's more rude not to own it. I think it's a disservice to the people who like your work and a disservice to yourself and a disservice to other people who make work to not own, hey, I'm doing pretty well. I'm exhausted, but I'm doing pretty well. I'm not perfect and... I don't always know what I'm doing, but some of the goals that I've set out to achieve have been achieved, and that's pretty incredible. Yes. So, I don't know, I'm coming into my creative um, self. The main thing of the last 12 months is, yeah, returning to some sort of creative self or achieving a new version of my creative persona. So, creative confidence. Yeah. I'm so glad I met you when I met you at this time. <laughs> what parts of yourself do you hide or dial down? Hmm. I'm kind of a weirdo, so I think... I used to hide that part of myself and that's kind of part and parcel with the whole introversion thing. Now I'm quite overt about being a bit kooky and weird. But then I think now it's become slightly performative. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not in a bad way, but <laughs> like I sometimes find myself leaning too much into that persona. Uh. And I'm conscious that I'm like, I don't need to be this. Now I'm probably like playing it up a little. Yeah, and can you, you know when you're wearing a mask when it's exhausting. Yeah, but I kind of enjoy it as well. We're, I mean, you know, we're always wearing masks to some degree. It's mm. just like what masks are we more comfortable with? And I think sometimes I overwear the, woo, woo, I'm chaotic mask. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need to chill out. But I think it's an easy one to indulge as well because it's kind of fun and I didn't get to do it for so long. I have a lot of discomfort around sincerity, unless I'm with the right people. So I guess it's hard because I don't know how people see me, necessarily. I know a lot of people think of me as an extrovert nowadays, and I guess that's always jarring, because I, I can understand that, but whenever it's said, I'm like, oh yeah, objectively, I can see why that's the perception, but my like trauma or my history around being an introvert, or being shy or softly spoken, or the wallflower, or not seen, you know, being invisible feels so at odds. You know, I feel like my whole identity was founded on the notion of being this invisible person mm. who had to carve out their identity. So then having carved out my identity, I don't see myself as having achieved that, mm. even though I am in the process of that. That's interesting. Because yeah. it kind of connects to the next, the next question I was going to ask, which was, what do people get wrong about you? Do you know? I don't know. I'd love to know. <laughs> Tell me everything, yeah. I don't. I, I find it so interesting because I don't know you that well, but... I don't think people are wrong to think I'm an extrovert. I guess they're wrong to think that's... That's the all. one. Ex yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it's almost like I can hear through what you create and what you write. I'm like, okay, obvious. Nathan is this really... Profound. <laughs> deep thinker. I was going to say, like, you're obviously... I really love that you have a way of getting below the waterline with some of the stuff and being so vulnerable. Mm. I think it's funny because I like exposing myself on some level, I think, which is a strange thing to say, but um, <laughs> okay. I like vulnerability when it feels safe. Mm. And how do you know it feels safe? Surrounding yourself with the right people and right creatives. Like I hate vulnerability when it feels dangerous, when it feels almost like self-harm. Mm. or self-sabotage, mm. but I love vulnerability when it feels safe and when it feels honest and it feels like it's born from a place of integrity 
Like, I'm vulnerable because I'm trying to be as human as possible in this moment because I respect you as audience members to respect my vulnerability. It's like a feedback loop. Mm. But I'm sure I've overstepped at times or haven't quite achieved that, or it's not the same for everyone. I think the importance of telling stories is one of the most fundamental human desires or one of the most important things a human can do for themselves. Like it's existentially important, and I'm paraphrasing something I read somewhere else, but it's existentially important to tell your own story. Because if you don't tell your own story, someone else will do it for you. It's kind of the notion of the first story that you ever tell someone is your name. And that is something that is usually not chosen by yourself. Mm. So how do you correct that? And it's the stories that you tell people. And that's even beyond being a storyteller, even though we're all storytellers, but it's even beyond being like a storyteller for a living, right? And this goes to, I don't know, personal brand as a part of that, but also how you email someone, how you address people, how you talk about how your day is, is so part of your internal and then external narrative. And like storytelling is an important skill because if you don't know how to do that, how do you express the fundamentals of who you are to a person or to the world? And if you can't express who you are to other people, how can you navigate the world? Because how you see yourself is actually a lot of the time how other people see you. And that's frightening. How did you come to this realization? Yeah. I, I think honestly, my really, it was like a five year relationship and that coming to an end really kind of blew up my world. <laughs> yes. Because the internal logic of that relationship, I thought, was going to be, in some ways, the rest of my life. So I had kind of, like, settled on this paradigm of, this is who I am, and this is who I'll be with this person against the world. I felt quite static in that, comfortably static, I guess. Or I thought I was comfortably static in that relationship until it hit a wall, and I was like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. And then I had to throw some dynamite at it and blow it all up. Right. And that was good in the long run. And I think he's better for it and I'm better for it. Yeah. But at the time, treacherous. Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting. I don't know if you've heard me speak about it, but a very similar situation, five-year relationship, mm. got out of that and it was like, whoa. Yeah. Who am I? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. I was 30 at the time. Mm. <laughs> so much older than you. Yeah, I was 20 to 25 was sort of mm. the... So it was perfect for my quarter-life crisis, you know? It was like, mmm, juicy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. And I went pretty, like, I was super chaotic after that, like, rediscovering myself. I did all sorts of things. I did keto for a while. <laughs> truly, Look, truly. I went to Mandarin classes. <laughs> I went to Mandarin yes. night classes. Yeah. I jumped into a really toxic, another toxic relationship, but it was, like, toxic in a different way. I jumped into, like, a very sexually dysfunctional relationship, let's call it that. Like, it was, like, so just about serving each other's sexual needs in this really, like, base way, which is fun for a while. I was like, ooh, this is really good. I quite enjoy this. And then I was like, oh no, this is not healthy. Yeah, so I jumped into a really, like, intense sexual dynamic with a stranger, you know, from the internet for, like, six months after my relationship blew apart. And then after that, I kind of did a bit of casual dating. And then I was like, okay, within that space, I'm going back to the things that I care about, which are art and my friends. You know, the things that were undermined or the things that were not given breathing space yeah. during my relationship. Yeah. Not because my partner never supported me, just because we were so invested in that. That's not where the focus was, right? No. Yeah. My partner at the time was super supportive, but also quite jealous. You know, there was this kind of really fraught dynamic of we were both creatives and we were both in that kind of early emerging level. Mm. How romantic are you? I think I used to be more romantic when I was a bit more delusional about, <laughs> and that's not to say romance isn't real, but I think a lot of my romance was born from ideas and notions about how people are versus... Reality. Yeah, like, so much of my romanticism is born from when I project an ideal onto uh, a person. Yeah. 
So I'm obsessed about the notion of someone rather than them anyway. Like, yeah, and it's so silly. I, I, <laughs> because, I don't know, I got obsessed with my as Briggs when I was in my early 20s. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh my God, I'm such an INFP. I- <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, which is a super dreamy. Oh, is it? Yeah, like the, like a very dreamy. Do you know your birth chart? I don't know what that is, exactly. Like, like I was wondering what your Venus, what... what um, I'm a Leo. Yes. I'm a Leo, probably an ENFP these days. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Sorry, I totally... <laughs> no, but what talking about. I guess, yeah, the more sort of fantastical or the less grounded I am about romance, the more romantic I am. Because I'll start fixating on, like, imagining scenarios around the person, who the person is, and what we'll be like together if I'm not careful. Mm. And I'm just like, this is so silly. Oh, at least you're aware of it, though. Oh, yeah, and I kind of have to nip it in the bud really quickly. But it's made me quite a bad person to date, I think, in the more recent years because... I'm, I can be quite closed off. Like, I don't consider myself closed off. I'm not a closed off person, but in terms of navigating dating, I can be quite drawing really arbitrary lines. I w- yeah, I was going to ask, how's your love life looking? I would say I'm getting back into dating this year. And then over the last few years, it's been more just like, oh, I've got some nice friends that I'll have sex with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was in a really nice place with having sex with friends that I loved, hmm. but also kind of ready to move on from that as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm giving dating a go again. And dating is strange because I never really did much dating. I like aspects of it. The ambiguity around it can be quite fun, but also dreadful, <laughs> because I'm very neurotic and anxious. <laughs> Me too. But then I'm also, I love the, like, <laughs> I love the space that ambiguity presents as well, which is sort of like the unknown. Mm. And only in the unknown, you know, you have to be lost before you can find certain things, right? Because there are things that when you're looking for them will never appear. It's like, I think Rebecca Solnit talks about, yeah, in Field Guide to Getting Lost, how, yeah, the best thing you can do is sort of just get lost and discover things. Mm. And I feel like dating or meeting new people at its best does that because people surprise you and people destabilize and subvert your notions of who you think they are. Oh, God, you're convincing me that I need to start dating. Okay. But that's when it's at its best, right? Mm. At its worst, people exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as bad as you. <laughs> at its worst, you know, people are like worse than, you know, there's this meme of Jason, but he takes off his mask. <laughs> And he's just Freddy Krueger underneath. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) How spiritual would you say you are? I'm pretty open to spirituality these days. Kind of for the gag, kind of for the meme. But then the more I kind of joke about it or like ironically enjoy it, the more I just enjoy it. Mm. You know, um, Sam Takani read me my tarot like a month ago for the first time. How was that? You know what? I loved was it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking loved it. I. Yes. And I was like, I was kind of getting emotional. I was like, oh my God, yes. Sam. Yes. <laughs> but Sam's a really good tarot reader. Yeah. So recommend. Yeah. And I just feel like spirituality at its best isn't predictive, it's reflective. I was interested to see what you would say to that question because as someone who's been in the audience and heard your work, it does actually connect with me on a spiritual level. It's so interesting because I don't think of myself as a spiritual person and I don't think my, let's go to personal brand. I don't think my personal <laughs> brand necessarily um, reflects or would tell anyone that I'm spiritual because I wouldn't say I am, mm. but I connect with spirituality and I connect with these sort of notions of the world being a bit unknowable because I think the world is deeply unknowable and deeply mysterious. Even though I was definitely one of those teenagers who was like, bro, I'm so secular, bro. Oh, I am such an atheist, bro. You know, like yeah, I was yeah, so yeah. one of, like my group of friends were like the hard atheists, devil's advocate arguing with everyone about religion sort of kids, probably in high school. And that's probably because I grew up in Christchurch as well. <laughs> sure. 
Yeah, but mm. actually I've come to a, you know, I don't know everything, so whatever. And they're just, I think spirituality, even if how we might try to articulate it, sometimes comes across as woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very woo-woo. Yeah, way. I kind of love the term woo-woo as well. Can I just I'm, talk about how much I love woo-woo? Yes, yes. Because it's, yes. it is. Spirituality sounds silly. Yes. But I had a friend drag me to an ecstatic dance thing. Yes. And I was like, oh, this is so woo-woo. <laughs> And, you know, it was so long and it was so sober. Everyone was so happy and sober and dancing. And I was like, oh, come on, guys. Was this one of those 6 a.m. things? No, that's oh. Morning Rave. Okay. <laughs> I think you get, sometimes they overlap. But yeah. then, you know, we held hands at the end and said our names and made a sound and said a word. And I was like, this is so woo-woo. But you know what? Sometimes you need a space that invites calmness or invites tranquility or invites the potential to connect. Sometimes spirituality is an excuse to connect more than it is to mm. or an excuse to reflect. Like, it's a device to me. But a really powerful device to get out of yourself. I'm just trying to be more open-minded because I'm a very ironic person and I've got a lot of walls. It's, you know, spirituality, dating, all that stuff is sort of difficult things to engage with on like a historical level for me. Most of my relationships weren't born from dating. Most of my um, beliefs were born from being quite secular and closed-minded. And now I'm leaning into to be truly liberal and to be truly progressive is to be open-minded, right? Like I don't think atheism and being truly progressive actually fit that well together, personally. I think the, the beauty of the left is, <laughs> or the beauty of the woke left, is that we are open, hopefully, to being wrong. Yeah. We are open to the notion that maybe we aren't always on the right side of the war. When and how do you switch off your brain? Oh, I'm really bad at that. I'm Sometimes a thought will just get trapped in my head and I'll be up all night and I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. I kind of have to exhaust myself. If I exhaust myself, I can switch it off. But if I can't just exhaust myself, because that's not very practical, a good way is to read, is to watch a film. I just actually struggle to find space to do that. Yeah, It used to be like partying. Mm. I mean, I still party a fair amount. <laughs> but um, I'd say partying became a way to do that. Yoga, I guess. Exercise, running. The kind of obvious ones where I'm forced to do a task that puts me outside of myself. Which is why, yeah, partying, dancing, running, Pilates, yoga, they work because I'm focused on the task at hand. And reading as well. What do you like reading about? I'm a sucker for a good personal essay. I love reading plays and poetry. But I guess... I, I just love so much, actually, that it's quite hard to pick one thing. Recently, I love reading about, I guess, experiences that reflect my own in surprising ways. Experiences that help me understand myself better because I haven't looked at something, you know. There's the two kind of things we want from, I think, a reading experience or a story. It's to see ourselves reflected or to learn something new about another person's experience. And sometimes those two things meet. I think as POCs or BIPOC or as a queer person... You're so used to um, reading stories that you aren't reflected in, and you're trained to actually empathise. I think people have this misconception that oh, the woke left only want to see themselves, and they want to like overpopulate the screens and the books and the stages with representation, but it's because they can't empathise with white people. But actually, we've spent all our lives empathising with white characters. Totally. Like, mm. I'm so good at The thing is, I'm actually very good at it. Yes. Like, oh, yes. Before I ever saw myself reflected on the screen, I was projecting myself onto River Phoenix. Oh, I was yeah, yeah. projecting myself onto Ethan Hawke and Before Sunrise. I was projecting myself onto Julie Delpy and Before Sunset, you know? Yeah. We are so good at putting ourselves in other people's shoes that it's actually such a relief or such a release to finally not have to do the work of constantly projecting onto characters who look nothing like us. Yeah. So... I really like seeing things where my body or my experience is reflected at the moment because I've spent my first 25, 26, 27, 28, 29 years of my life doing the opposite. How would you sum up your 20s so far? Lots of learning. Lots of learning and lots of mistakes 
and lots of thinking I knew where I was going and being wrong and yeah, lots of humbling experiences. And what do you imagine the 30s will be like? I hope cementing some of the principles or cementing and solidifying the things I believe in because I've got a lot of, I guess, founding values that I'm operating on at the moment that have been newly developed over the last few years. And I go, will I hold on to these values I believe are important? Mm. And it's okay if they change, but the ones that are really important the people who are really important to me, can I, with integrity, value them in the way that they deserve to be valued? A big thing for me is to not just simply be co-opted by whatever system I'm operating in. And can I hold on to that with integrity mm. once certain work comes up? And I don't know, because I've always got to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And I'm such a advocate for ideologically queering systems and queering work and queering spaces. Not just like making them gay, but flipping them on their head and exposing the strangeness of them. And I go, will there be a point where I'm like, I'm tired of disruption. I'm tired of queering things. Mm. And I just want to like lie, be, down. lie <laughs> down and be heteronormative. <laughs> and I go, I hope not. And I want to forgive myself in advance yeah. if I choose to want to take a break. But I also want to have the integrity to hold on to it when it's important. So yeah, I hope the 30s is about proving that I have strong value systems. Whereas 20s was about finding what those values were. Uh, will be. Yeah. And what are you working on at the moment? I'm currently working on a youth show for Auckland Theatre Company's Here and Now program. So the play is called Yang Yang Yang, which is about these two Chinese Kiwi girls in high school, Poppy Yang and Chuju Yang. And it's this really beautiful story of what it means to be a young Asian person in New Zealand. It's queer, not all queer, but it's very queer. We've got a really queer cast, and I mean that in the best way. Like, mm. and actually, it's the biggest Asian cast I've ever worked with as well. Oh, exciting. Yeah, the cast are just so smart and brave and knowing, you know, kind-hearted while also being very, just so sharp. I love them to pieces, and I'm really excited to put the play on at the basement later in July. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> but... It'll be cool. Basement main space for here and now. Yeah. When are you most at ease at the moment? <laughs> are you like, uh? I'm not very easeful, but with certain people I am. Mm. I, I have a friend, a best friend. In a way, more than a best friend. You know, when you're that close to someone, I feel like best friend doesn't, you know, it's a word that's bandied about so much. But um, I feel very easeful with. Shout out to Daniel Goodwin. And I love him. He's so great. Them. So they, non-binary. Oh, yeah. thanks for correcting no, me. No, no, I, I get it wrong all the time. So it's like this thing that I'm still learning. So I'm just like correcting myself all yes, the time. Yes, yeah. But um, yeah, they're really smart and brave and fiery. Yeah. And they're not afraid to correct people about Good. when they've done things wrong. And I, I've learned so much about apologizing <laughs> and fucking up and owning it from them. But also... I'm at easeful with them because there's a, if we're uncomfortable, if there's something that's making us uncomfortable, we say it, we name it, yeah. you know, and the power of naming things is, oh, just so important. You know, for neurotic people like myself, to be able to name th something means I know what it is and that I can release it. So I'm easeful around my friends. I'm easeful around people I trust. I'm easeful when I feel like I can say what's on my mind. You know, as soon as I can't say what's on my mind, I don't feel very easeful. Yeah. Mm. Okay, finish these sentences. I dream of. I dream of... Do you create space to dream at the moment? I do in a way. I dream of a lot of things in a way. I mean, I dream a lot about sex these <laughs> days. I, I dream a lot about sex. It's like wild. I'm like, hey, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. And I think it's because I'm probably in the least sexually active period of my life by quite a large margin, if we don't count, you know, my um, <laughs> prepubescent period. 
But um, yeah, I'm. I dream of sex a lot, or I dream of like making that with people a lot. It's. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? And it's like, obviously, I know what's going on. I haven't been that sexually active. Yeah. But it's yeah. Good answer. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today I'm inspired by. Today I'm inspired by the knowledge that these conversations are happening all around us all the time because they are. Mm. I think, again, we underestimate or we don't acknowledge the amount of creative, creative energy that's bubbling underneath the surface of our country. And I'm inspired by that. I'd love to be known for. I'd love to be known for, I guess on like a really lame, superficial level, I'd love to be known for being the generation's gay Asian playwright in Aotearoa. Yes, <laughs> there's nothing, I, I see no lameness or super, or anything superficial about that, yes. And I think it appeals to me because actually I think the visibility of that is quite important. Yes. I think being the, you know, New Zealand's like foremost gay Asian playwright is a really exciting thing yes. for other people to see because what even is a playwright, what even is a gay Asian playwright in New Zealand? It, it, I think it's inherently subversive, I guess. Yeah. I like being subversive and I like doing things that by existing you're breaking a stereotype or by existing you're reframing narratives because I want to carve my existence into this world and I want to do it in a way that is healing to other people or like inspiring mm. like I do want to inspire people because I would have liked to have been inspired by not me specifically but someone like me growing mm. up yeah I just didn't know a gay Asian playwright could exist in yeah. the world and move into it and move around it and move through it with some sense of confidence or freedom yeah I love that you answer that question with that and I ask that question because I think it's important that we speak it mm. to each other and hear yeah. other people saying that sort of stuff. I think so too. And if you can't actually say it out loud to yourself, you're probably not going to do it, you know? Mm. And it doesn't really matter whether it actually happens. It's more like yeah. this is the intention. Yep. Ooh. Ooh. Vain. Yeah, I think yeah. intentionality is really important. And I don't know if goal setting itself is important, but like wanting, like mm. being honest about your wants and desires yeah. is really important because if you can't be honest about your wants and desires, how can you ask for them yeah. from the world when the world is so ready, I think as a person of color, as a minority to say no Yeah. before you've even asked. We've just kind of gone full circle because we're going back to the, the stretching. The stretching. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're not going to get to the highest branch and the highest tree or that, that ripe, ripe apple on the highest branch of the highest tree. If you don't reach for it. Yeah. Nice. Nathan. <laughs> Trying to <laughs> mix the metaphors back together. What have I not asked you that you'd like to chat about? It's probably something, but I don't know. I, I think it's really important that people question themselves and their values all the time, constantly. We're so socialized to believe that we believe what we believe. And it's fixed. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like I didn't say that in the most eloquent way, but... We, we think our belief systems are fundamental or innate, but they're not. Yeah. Most, if not all, our belief systems are thrust upon us. Totally. And that's what I'm curious about. Like, I'm always like, so how did that, how did mm. you get to that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, like, the cool thing about, I guess, queer ideology is it's saying the status quo does not have to be the case. The status quo should be challenged and that, I don't know, the human, the arc of human history or the arc of um, one man or woman's or person's life is shouldn't be dictated by these fixed benchmarks, you know, kids, marriage, career, owning a home. Mm. To be a queer person actually inherently means those things are already thrown into question, I think. And they should be. And if you still want them, cool. But please question them first because if they go unquestioned, you'll wake up at 25 <laughs> or 40 <laughs> after your relationship falls to pieces and you'll realize, oh my God. This identity I've carved into the world is not even mine. Wow. And I don't know. I could be wrong about who I want to be at the moment, but I'm always questioning it. I'm trying to. I love it. Well, thank you. 
Thank you, Jenna. We will end it there then. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow Asian and Aotearoa on Instagram for updates on new episodes and be sure to keep an eye out for the next Dirty Passports and scenes from a yellow peril next year. <laughs>